One of the dinner guests, on hearing this, said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married, and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Jesus once told a parable that had a weird twist ending. He wanted to put into people's mind a very particular image of the kingdom of God. An image that made a point of including marginal outcasts, the people who lived on the fringes of society and who everyone else despised. And at the same time, he wanted to put forward the image of a kingdom that excluded the elites, the privileged, and the hyper-religious. But the problem was that that kind of thing simply didn't happen in his world. Just like it doesn't really happen in ours. Whenever anything nice happens, we all know it is the rich and the privileged who get the front row seats, while the people who live on the fringe are left out in the cold. And so, Jesus had to come up with a somewhat convoluted tale of a banquet that ended with a ridiculous situation where everything was all topsy-turvy. I have no doubt that Jesus told such a tale because one of the key points that he was constantly making about the kingdom of God was that it was a place where the first would be last and the last would be first, where the normal order of things was turned upside down. So he definitely told the story. But unfortunately, we don't know exactly how he told it, because we have two very different versions of the parable 
in two different Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And in those two different versions, the story is equally convoluted, but convoluted in quite different ways. In Luke's version, the one I just read to you, and the one that seems to be better known, the reason why the elites are excluded from the kingdom of God is because they are just too darn busy and distracted by the demands of their elite lives. Meanwhile, the poor folk are less busy, and they therefore seem to have the time to pursue the kingdom's goals. But the version of the same parable told in the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew is very different indeed. In Matthew, it's not just a story of a feast, but actually the story of a wedding. Indeed, the story of the worst wedding ever. Don't believe me? Well, let me describe it to you. This wedding is organized entirely by the groom's father. What's more, the father seems to have absolutely no regard for the wishes of his son or the bride and what she might like. That doesn't even come up. So, it already sounds like that wedding is not going to go very well, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you have no idea. This wedding is so bad that even before it begins, hundreds of people, maybe even thousands, will die because of it. Messengers who are sent out with the invitations will be tortured and murdered. Whole cities will be attacked and burned to the ground. But despite all this slaughter, is the wedding called off? Is it even postponed? Not at all. The guest list is updated and the guests arrive. Once again, with absolutely no attention being paid to the bride or the groom. Then, before the wedding feast even begins, one of the wedding guests finds himself being bound hand and foot and cast into the most disturbing place. And this, all of this, is supposed to be a joyful celebration of two people pledging their love? It is the kind of wedding story you might expect to hear on the reality TV show about wedding disasters called Bridezilla's, or maybe find in a book written by George R. R. Martin. But no, this wedding disaster story is found in the Bible. So how is it that Matthew's version of the parable takes such a dark and bloody turn? How can 
one version of the same parable be a story of, Oh, I'm so busy, please excuse me. Well, the other is all, Die, you evil bastards, die! I'd like to try and tell you a story of how I think it happened. Now, I'm going to have to simplify the story to tell it. I mean, obviously, there is a complex oral and literary history of the relationship between the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Scholars have literally been trying for centuries to make sense of the connection between these three Gospels. But I'm going to just skim over all of that and tell you a, let's call it a parable, about how the parable that Jesus told came across in two remarkably different ways. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.23, A Wedding Disaster of Biblical Proportions. Imagine two men. And yes, for convenience sake, call those two men Matthew and Luke. The two of them are walking away after listening to one of the most fascinating speakers they have ever heard. He held them spellbound as he spoke to the small crowd of eager listeners on a Galilean hillside in the middle of nowhere. He told them story after story, and all of them were about this thing that he called the Kingdom of God. He never quite said exactly what such a kingdom was, but he went on and on about how it was like this, or how it was like that. It was like a mustard seed, like a woman who lost a coin, like a treasure hidden in a field. And as they listened, Matthew and Luke both found that an image of this kingdom was growing in their minds. An image of a way of organizing the world that was so different from how things were normally done. And the part of that image that particularly struck them was the ending scene of one of his stories. This story had ended in a banquet hall, with people gathered and feasting in abundance. But there was a problem was all the wrong people in the places of honor. On the best dining couches 
were the outsiders, the people who lived on the fringes of society. Meanwhile, all the important and wealthy people were excluded. In several of his stories, Jesus seemed to insist on this picture of the nature of the kingdom of God. But Matthew and Luke were struggling to get their minds around it. Things simply didn't happen in the world that way. Whenever anything nice happened, it was always the rich and the important people who got the privileged positions. It was always the people on the fringes who were left on the outside. And so the story that Jesus had told, the story that ended with this extremely unusual scene, had naturally been a very convoluted tale. Only a rather strange series of events could possibly lead to such an unusual outcome. But I guess that Matthew and Luke were so overwhelmed by the strange ending that they didn't quite remember all of the details of the convoluted tale that led up to it. So, they parted from one another with a warm greeting, each heading home to ponder what strange circumstances could create such a vision of the kingdom of God. As Luke struggled with this idea of the kingdom over the following weeks and months and then years and decades, he tried to imagine how the strange state of affairs could have come about. And then, one night, it finally came to him. The sense of inspiration was so overwhelming that he suddenly sat straight up in bed and cried out, I think I have it. You see, he reasoned, the main cause for the wealthy and the elites missing out on the promise of the kingdom is just because they are so darn busy and they are constantly distracted. Yeah. That was right. They always had something on the go. It was always, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I have just been married. And so they just never had the time and the leisure to consider the priorities of the kingdom of God. And that was why they missed out. But meanwhile, the poor and the outcasts, at least as far as Luke knew, had nothing but time on their hands. They could pursue the kingdom's goals without distraction. And so in that way, it could make sense. 
as ridiculous as it was on the face of it, that they might just find prominence in the kingdom. And so, when, in later days, Luke began to tell and retell the convoluted tale of the great feast, and when he eventually came to write it down, the convolutions that he built into the tale all had to do with the elites being busy and distracted. That was really the only reason why they failed to enter into the kingdom. And the story, as Luke told it, was very encouraging, really. It suggested that the rich and the important people weren't all that far away from the kingdom, that they might just find their way towards it, if only they could get over their fascination with all having the latest models of yoked oxen. And yet at the same time, it allowed the people to get in a few laughs at the expense of those silly rich people who were always too busy with their oxen and land purchases and their latest new young wives. Luke felt as if he had really captured what the teacher had meant when he put forward that troubling picture of a kingdom where all the wrong sorts of people ended up in positions of honor. When Matthew made his way home, however, he was equally troubled by the image of the kingdom that Jesus had painted but he quickly found his thoughts turning in much darker directions. What if the elite weren't merely too distracted or negligent when it came to the question of the kingdom? What if they were openly hostile? What if they recognized it for what it was, a direct threat to themselves? and their privileges. After all, if people began to listen to the outcasts, the weirdos and the freaks, if they began to give them even a modicum of power or influence, people would begin to see that things could be different, and the rich and the powerful wouldn't have quite as much wealth or power anymore. And that was just unthinkable. And the more that Matthew thought about it, the more he realized that the powerful people of this world do not take such threats lightly. They do not just ignore them because they are too busy with other things, oxen and fields and stuff. And so, when Matthew began to write down his account of the great feast that was a picture of the kingdom of God, this 
is how he told it. When the messengers first came to the elites to invite them into the kingdom, their first response was to make light of it. Yes, they found the very idea of such a kingdom to be so ridiculous that they mocked it. They laughed at what they called these woke messengers for inviting them to a gathering where the very people that they looked down upon could be given places of honor. They made endless jokes that only they found to be funny about the fact that the invitations allowed people to state their dietary preferences or their preferred pronouns so as to make sure that no one might be made to feel unwelcome. <laughs> they probably thought that their jokes were so brilliant and biting that the host would simply cancel the kingdom feast out of embarrassment. But that did not happen. Indeed, the messengers became all the more insistent that the feast was prepared and that the people should come. And so the elites decided to up their game. It started with them complaining about how they were being treated. People had reacted poorly to what they thought of as their hilarious memes and jokes about the priorities of the kingdom and had said mean things or stopped giving them platforms. And so they said they were victims, victims of cancel culture. And then once they had identified themselves as the real victims in the situation, it just seemed as if the next step was inevitable. They began to resort to violence. Some seized the messengers, mistreated them, and killed them. And, well, things kind of spiraled out of control from there. You see, while we might like to think that the reason for why the kingdom has not yet come is something innocuous. The truth of the matter is that there are forces in this world that recognize the kingdom of God for the threat that it is to their power. And they will always react accordingly. I do not want to leave anyone with the impression that the authors of the first and the third gospels of our New Testament were individuals who actually heard Jesus tell his parables and then had to pass on the stories from their own memories and only according to their own interpretation of what they had heard. It didn't happen like that.
the authors that we call Matthew and Luke, were merely the ones who took various written sources and perhaps some oral traditions and compiled them into the books that we know as the Gospels. I just created these two imaginary characters in order to speculate about how the presentations of this particular parable of the Great Feast diverged so radically. I know that people would like to assume that one out of these two versions of the parable must be closer to the story that Jesus actually told than the other one. That may be true, of course, but if it is, we don't know which one. It is true that Matthew's parable of the wedding has become, in the hands of this author, something more of an allegory than a simple parable. An allegory is a story where various elements of the narrative represent particular things. And that is what we find in Matthew's Gospel. It seems pretty clear that the wedding, in which neither the bride nor the groom appear, is a reference to an apocalyptic future event, perhaps the one that is referred to elsewhere in the Gospel as the return of the Son of Man. The messengers, who are so abused and murdered, are pretty transparently meant to represent the prophets, who were often rejected in biblical history. And the destruction of the city in retaliation is clearly meant to represent the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 CE, a traumatic event that would have taken place a decade or two before this gospel was written. So, the parable has certainly been turned into a kind of allegory in the Gospel of Matthew, which I suspect was something that was added by the author of the Gospel himself, especially as he reflected on recent historical events. But does that necessarily mean that every unique element of the parable has been inserted by the Gospel writer? I'm not so sure. For me, there is something that rings true about how the wealthy and the elites respond to the threat of the Kingdom of God in the parable in the Gospel of Matthew. In any case, I just wanted to use the format of this very simplified story to invite you to reflect on how it is that we ended up with two such radically different versions of this particular parable of Jesus. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks, and do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin MacLeod, and the mood music for this episode was Diving in the Oceans of Kepler 
by Music L Files. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on twitter.com at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.